I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Timothy Quill, a professor of medicine, psychiatry, and medical humanities, and the director of the Center for Ethics, Humanities, and Palliative Care at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Dr. Quill has co-authored a perspective article on balancing evidence-based medicine with patient-centered care. Dr. Quill, in your article, you outline a five-step process for clinical decision-making that involves integrating and weighing input from the literature, the patient and family, and treating clinicians. In your experience, how often do physicians follow that type of process? I think we've gotten much better at weighing medical evidence and trying to figure out what large studies mean for particular people. So I think we've learned how to do that. And in a, in a separate strain, we've also learned that patients really are the ones who are going to have to make decisions. I think what we've, where we've had more trouble is trying to figure out how to meld those two strains uh, so that we uh, often are very paternalistic on complex medical decisions using medical evidence on the one hand, and on the other, we may be uh, making patients make decisions that are out of their depth or without a great deal of guidance from us. So this article is really about trying to meld those two strains to help people really make good decisions in tough circumstances. Where do you think clinicians and, I suppose, patients to some extent, too, tend to fall short today? Well, I think, again, what they do is they scratch the surface of this process but don't get into it deeply enough sometimes so that they might hear what the evidence is and hear a recommendation from a doctor or the patient might say, yes, that sounds good, or no, it doesn't sound good, but that ends the the process. And what you really want to have happen is to have them have a real exchange around these issues so that uh, uh, the patient's reluctance gets explored or the doctor's recommendation gets explored so that they really do understand one another so that you really use evidence and preferences to make decisions rather than letting one or the other dominate. Do you think that the time that that would require is is going to be available? I don't think it's that time-consuming. I think uh, it really just is a matter of hanging in there and going a little deeper at these critical moments. These decisions are are just tremendously important, particularly some of the bigger ones. Uh, but it also applies on smaller decisions. But big decisions, we ought to probably be spending a little more time up front before we get into some of these large medical adventures. And, and people are beginning to learn that. They're beginning to say, you know, let, when I'm reluctant, let's sit down and talk. Let's maybe have somebody else talk with the patient. I think that's on the right track. In fact, the case you use as an example involves a, a big decision. It's it's end-of-life care. Are there other health care decisions that you think the process could be useful in? Yeah, there there are many. It's certainly not just for end-of-life care. And in fact, the the case that we're talking about might be end-of-life, but it might not, depending on how it, how it uh, uh, unfolded. But I think when there is, uh, for example, on the serious end of the spectrum, risky surgery, where there's uh, a risk of moving forward with surgery and a risk of holding back. We just saw a patient with uh, who had a big aneurysm, but he also had multiple other aneurysms and medical problems, and he had to balance the risk of going for surgery right now versus watching this aneurysm for another six months to a year. So these are very tough decisions of taking a risk now versus the risk of waiting, and and this requires really some some really 
um, in-depth conversation so that he understands uh, both sides of this equation. And his um, view about these kinds of things uh, uh, has got to be given a lot of weight because there's no risk-free way to go. In this particular patient, the risk of not going forward would, would it was going to drive him crazy. So he was really willing to roll the dice. But this also applies to circumstances of kind of more routine things. Take the uh, prostate uh, cancer screening question, which actually, you know, is quite a complex question when you get into it. The data really don't support uh, uh, doing this kind of screening for most patients. But there is there is not a risk-free way to go forward. So this does require some conversation, some notion of the patient's values, and some thinking through the consequences in both directions. So it, it applies to routine practice as well. That learning about the patient's goals and values uh, is a key part of your process. In a companion perspective article, Lamas and Rosenbaum describe residents asking patients very specific questions about interventions that most patients aren't in a position to make decisions about. What's an appropriate way to lead a discussion that gets you to the patient's goals without placing too big a burden on them? Well, I think uh, you do sometimes see uh, uh, doctors asking patients around sort of some of the technical aspects. Do you want a central line? Do you want this drug or that drug? Clearly that, for most patients, doesn't make a great deal of sense. So you're really talking about having a discussion about the overall goals, what the overall approach is going to be. Uh, do you want to take a really aggressive uh, approach, which is going to require certain kinds of things, and here's the pluses and minuses, and then have that conversation. But then probably not involve them in the details of how that's carried out, because that's just uh, that's too much. There are uh, a small number of patients, of course, who want to get into that level of detail and who need to hear about everything, and that is time-consuming. But those folks are, are the exception rather than the rule, and, and that's really not what this is talking about. This is about sort of finding out this direction is likely to take us this way based on evidence that that choice is going to take us that way, and then you have a conversation about the patient's values with regard to those two general directions, and then once the general direction is decided upon, then really clinicians should be given, in most cases, pretty free reign to make the micro decisions around the overarching direction. As you say in your article, these decisions can be emotionally charged, and, and you recommend that clinicians modulate their tone, balance hope with realism. It's clearly an art. Is this something that can be taught? I would say it can definitely be taught. Certainly the, uh, the emotion, how do you take the emotion out of it or modulate it to some degree. These are skills uh, like any other skill in medicine. And some of the emotion, so-called emotion management skills, such as acknowledging the emotion, you know, you seem to be scared, you seem to be sad, legitimating, you know, anybody faced with such a decision would feel this way. And then really trying to get uh, patients to explore the underlying thinking that's leading to this emotion so that the doctor really understands that these are skills that even somebody who doesn't have a lot of emotional intelligence can can carry out as a, as a physician. Uh, so I think uh, those are skills that we teach our medical students and, and, and work with them and, and try to reinforce uh, that they can do it. There's also... Um, this uh, the notion of either or thinking so if I, if you're trying to be hopeful 
and taking some long shot treatment. Uh, we also encourage people to prepare in case that doesn't work. So that it's not putting all the eggs in one basket. You're really going to try to teach people to both think about one direction, but also prepare in case that doesn't work. And, and, and I think these are things that can be taught. And then in terms of putting them into practice, do you think it should be residents or attending physicians who are actually carrying out these conversations? Well, I think uh, I, uh, in my, with my hat on as an educator, I would say that these uh, responsibility for these decisions and discussions should be incremental. So clearly, uh, I don't think medical students are going to be involved in a lot of these deeper discussions about moving forward. They certainly may observe them. They may participate. They may uh, help people figure out after the discussion has been initiated. But I do think as residents, uh, they start to have decisions around CPR and do not resuscitate. And I think that's a, a discussion that, that has these characteristics. You know, there's evidence about how likely it is to work uh, in certain circumstances. It's emotionally charged to make a DNR decision. So you have to get into patients' preferences. And some patients may initially want full code because they're, they're so afraid of letting go of that, or they're afraid the doctors will give up on them. But as you explore that with them, uh, they really don't want certain kinds of things. So that, that, that's very amenable to this dynamic. And I think those are the kinds of conversations that our residents should be involved in. I think ideally we would observe them doing these discussions because there are ways to do it and ways not to do it so that it can be very doctor-dominated. You know, I'm going to get the DNR. Uh, or it can be very patient-centered. Do you want me to resuscitate your mother? And and that's that's patient-centered only in the most superficial way because if the if they say yes, you really want to have more conversation about that and make your recommendations and have a deeper discussion so they get at what's really the right thing to do in that circumstance. Then with these things like the case we brought up uh, in in this perspectives piece where you have to have a lot of clinical experience just to understand what the stakes are and what what the uh, uh, risks and benefits are. I think that requires a, a higher level of training and experience to have those conversations. There's been a lot of attention lately to the cost of care and whether physicians and patients should be including cost in the equation when they make major decisions about their health care. Do you think cost should be considered? And if so, how would that affect your process? Well, I think cost should be considered, but I'm not sure this is the right place to be considering it. Um, uh, clearly, that's a, at the most important level to have that discussion is at a policy and public level, and, and we are clearly reluctant as a society to have that uh, discussion until it's really going to hit us over the head, which it seems to be, uh, if it isn't doing it now, it's going to be in the near future. Um, I think costs uh, are a tougher thing to put into this individual patient discussion. So uh, there are costs, you know, the, the, there may be out-of-pocket costs that people have to pay for. Those are clearly relevant. Uh, there are certainly costs to uh, psychologically and spiritually of intervening versus not intervening. But the economic costs, I think, are are probably better left uh, out of this discussion, at least right now, and, and keep it more in terms of the risks and benefits, uh, both personally and, uh, and to the family and those kinds of levels. In the case you describe, an understanding of the patient's preferences 
resulted in the rejection of aggressive care of a ventricular assist device. Does your experience with patients suggest that more conservative or, or even palliative care would be chosen more often if clinicians followed this process and understood what patients uh, valued and were looking for? I would say sometimes yes and sometimes no. Uh, I do think uh, as we get into uh, more and more treatments with more burden and less gain, uh, if people really are in, my experience in palliative care is that if you really inform people about what's really at stake here, uh, a fair number of people will set different limits than they will if they only understand it at the surface. Having said that, there will be a percentage of people who will t- who will take any risk to live a little bit longer, and and we support that in palliative care. And again, in the current environment, that's a choice people can make. Uh, and 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 uh, uh, but but you'd hate to have them make that decision based on false information or a lack of an in-depth understanding. And the, and the more uh, burdensome the treatment is, the more risk it has, uh, the more you want people to really understand what they're getting into up front if possible. That was what was uh, the, uh, the case that uh, we presented in the article. You know, this is, this is serious treatment. This is not something to enter into lightly, a VAD or a major surgery. Uh, and uh, if people are in the, have the right criteria and they understand what they're getting into in the current environment, then and they want to do it, that's okay. But they really should have a lot of conversation with these uh, burdensome, uh, high-risk uh, treatments. Now, again, treatments like that, there's risk to going forward and risk to not going forward, so there's no risk-free approach. But you want people to understand as much as they can up front if possible. Thank you, Dr. Quill. My pleasure.